Hey, you know where I am? You know where yeah. I am? I'm in the room at the end of 2001 A Space Odyssey. <laughs> where, I, where I normally am. So uh, I have, my life hasn't really changed very much. I feel like the question that we should ask is where is our soul right now? Where would it like to be? Because I watched Easy Rider last night and it was definitely out in the wild uh, American open road. And that's where I'm imagining wow. my soul. Had you seen Easy Rider before or was that I a lockdown choice? Well, so I saw it a long time ago and I grew up with basically all the cast members in, in character of Easy Rider around me. So, um, but I haven't seen it. I'm a child of the West Coast of Canada. And wow. um, there's a, yeah, it's like the whole, you know, cast reassembled for that. It's like Dennis Hopper is our neighbor kind of thing. Not really, but it felt like it sometimes. But, um, but no, I'd, re I'd watched it a long time ago and we, we watched it last night. And can I just say that soundtrack is yeah. uh yeah so i've been listening to the wait um ever since on repeat just thinking about the open road the wait i'm trying to do this from memory the wait steppenwolf right steppenwolf multiple yeah, steppenwolf yeah uh wasn't born to follow by the birds wasn't born to follow by the birds there's a bob That's dylan very good andy very in impressive there. yeah hey it's... i i <laughs> i've measured out my life in uh 60s soundtracks um <laughs> I like Easy Rider. I love it. What a brilliant example of a film that means one thing if you see it when you're 17 and another mm. when you're older than 17. Yeah. I think it, it captures both the sort of freedom and the malevolence of the era. It's a sort of perfect. Yeah, very good. Very good description. Ooh, uh. are you, Johnny, are you all right? Yeah, I'm better now. I had a had a genuine panic there when I, I realised that there wasn't a there wasn't a uh, whatever that card is called in the Zoom. But I, I've got found that I've got everything. I have everything I need. I've, I've got everything you need. I've got my notes here. I've got, yeah, like, I've got my notes. I've got, got numerous books. books. I'm going to have yeah. to slightly muck around with the laptop while we talk because I've got things that I might need to refer to. But um, I just yeah I can't find my phone, which is probably a good thing. Um, so that's off. Uh, yeah, I, th I think we've got it all. Well, we've been away for a while, <laughs> listeners. We, we can't take any responsibility for what's happened. <laughs> it wasn't our fault. <laughs> we just thought we'd, we'd been doing it for four years. We just wanted a bit of time off. And then all this has happened. Well, it was a sabbatical when we started it, but now it's become a furlough. <laughs> yeah. We have been meeting regularly, I suppose, those of you who have listened to the lot listed that we've done, which has been, which has been, uh, I have to say, increasingly an important thing. That sense of connection with, with uh, people about and talking about things that matter. We've been so touched and we've so enjoyed making shows, carrying on making shows that we decided that we want to keep on doing it. Yeah. But uh, we have to also acknowledge that it's uh, quite a lot of, of work yeah. for all of us to to keep making that happen. Yeah, we've had time, obviously, to reflect on how to it's you know how to do more of them, how to keep the standard high, and you know more time means more money. And in an ideal world, we we prefer, and you know, it's not an ideal world, is everybody <laughs> at the moment? Uh, we prefer to make these shows without adverts we have had some offers uh, of adverts and we have had sponsors in the past and it's okay but we we prefer editorially 
to do without it if we can. And so what we've done is we started a Patreon account where you can support us uh, by paying a subscription, a small amount every month. Yeah, and in return for that uh, honorarium, it's let's be honest, it's about the cost of a glass of wine or a craft ale in a pub, if you remember a pub. And for that, we were, we're recording. We're, we've so enjoyed doing the lot listeds that we've done. We're going to record a lot listed so subscribers will get an extra two as well as the two uh, episodes of Batlisted each month, you'll get a uh, an episode, two episodes of Lot Listed as well, which the plan being that they'll only be available to the people who are patrons. And there'll probably be some other stuff too. Uh, we may even uh, rustle up the uh, the old uh, T-shirts and mugs again. And uh, we've got an amazing, uh, amazing listener who's made Batlisted bookmarks. So you can expect those featuring in the deal as well. And also, I'm very keen that we offer an opportunity to come. Uh, you could come and see or hear or both. Why not do both? Uh, an episode of Batlisted being recorded because it's always nice to have extra people to laugh at your jokes. And um, also, we would quite like to. Um, we think we're gonna we're gonna institute some kind of come and have a go if you think you're hard enough level of uh, uh, sponsorship where you could choose a book that will be featured on a forthcoming episode of Batlisted. So we've got we've got quite a few ideas, but but to start with, in return for your subscription, which is, you know, not just about the cost of a glass of wine, it's less than the cost of a book. Yes, true. It's less than the cost of a book to hear us <laughs> talk about them instead. So please sponsor us. Um, the link to the Batlisted Patreon is in our Twitter bio and it's on the website at batlisted.fm. Uh, but here it is in words, www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. So, yeah. Um, hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today, you find us in a drab square in the back streets of southwest London in the years after the Second World War, standing outside a Victorian church with an ugly stained glass window, waiting for the vicar to arrive so the weekday evensong service can begin. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously, and joining us today on this reunion episode of Backlisted are Becky Brown and Nora Perkins. Hello, Becky and Nora. Hello. Hello. And uh, Becky and Nora have been friends for seven years and colleagues for three. Um, and I want to ask, are those sentences running concurrently? Or, <laughs> uh, so I'm reading out what they, we, we ask, we ask our guests for an intro and this is what they've sent over. They sent over, this is, this I have to say, we're back and our guests are already raising the bar for all future guests with this, <laughs> with this pithy introduction. Uh, together. Becky and Nora are joint custodians of the Curtis Brown Heritage List of Literary Estates and authors that they look after, therefore, include Iris Murdoch, Stella Gibbons, Douglas Adams, Elizabeth Bowen, Gerald and Lawrence Durrell. And Margot. And Margot. Yeah, she doesn't make the blurb. She didn't make the blurb. <laughs> Margot, who in the television series, do you know this fact? In the television series, The Durrells, 
Margot is played by Tim Waterstone's daughter. Daisy. Daisy. Yeah. There you go. You did know. We did know. Margaret Kennedy and Laurie Lee. And um, in their spare time, (laughs) Becky edits anthologies uh, with the next one, Classic Cat Stories, coming out from Macmillan later this year. And Nora, who is so embarrassing. Nora, no, like Nora, like you know, on bookblurbs, listeners, people go. He he uh, he was once a, chi- a chicken wrangler and now divides his time between Naples and uh, London. Right. So Nora's put. Nora divides her spare time between the garden and the very slow restoration of a Victorian printing press. Very um, slow. When you, when you say garden, uh, Nora, is that? I mean, you're not just standing out there screaming. Um, you're 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 actually tending plants and and gr- growing things. These days, I'm digging isolation potatoes. But yeah. And the book that uh, Becky and Nora have chosen to discuss is one that many backlisted listeners uh, were delighted to to learn we were going to cover, and that is Excellent Women by Barbara Pym, first published in 1952 by Jonathan Cape, and reissued as a Virago modern classic in 2009. And um, I must tell you this story. Our friend of the show and former guest, Andrew Mayle, his favourite author, is Barbara Pym. And when he <laughs> spotted that we were we were going to be doing an episode about Barbara Pym, he said he, he wanted to know which book are you doing and who are the guests. And I sent him a DM that said, two <laughs> guests, both women, you probably won't know either, but they're in charge of all the estates of dead authors at Curtis Brown. And he replied saying, are you sure it's two women you won't know? They're in charge of all the estates of dead authors. Isn't actually a line from a Barbara Pym novel. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you for joining us. I wonder whether we could talk a little bit about before we I asked John what he's been reading. So you look after literary estates and uh, for Curtis Brown, some extremely famous authors, some lesser known authors. Becky, you were responsible, were you not, for getting the entire backlist uh, of Patrick Hamilton back in print simultaneously for the first time ever. Is that right? (laughs) Um, Yes, although um, under the auspices of AM Heath, a different literary agency. uh, But but yes, I was. Um, It's still, and I probably shouldn't say it two years into into a different career in a different agency, but still the greatest achievement of my adult life. Amazing. Yeah. No, it's amazing. <laughs> Lots of backlisted listeners will understand this because because most backlisted listeners like Patrick Hamilton. That's the first thing. But the yeah. second mm-hmm. is there was a, there was an era not so long ago where you could find three or four of the better known ones, and then the rest were just lost unless Always. you had thousands of pounds at your disposal. So so what were the challenges mm-hmm. of getting that those back into the shops? Um. Well, I mean. Getting hold of Monday Morning, which, uh, as you probably know, was Hamilton's first novel, was literally impossible. I mean, some of the kind of mid-career stuff that weren't the big books, we could pick up on Abe for quite a lot of money, but it felt worth the investment. But Monday Morning, you know, you were talking over a thousand quid for a copy. And in the end, we put out a sort of online appeal. Um, So I thought you meant the right, you don't mean the rights, you mean... No, I mean the physical, I mean, yeah, welcome to our world, Andy Miller, getting hold of the physical (laughs) books. It's a that's, nightmare. That's inc- that is incredible. I hadn't realised yeah. that, that they would be so elusive. Um, yeah, and, and it was impossible. And, and But there was this this wonderful man who, sadly, his name I can't remember, but if he listens to this, thank you. So many people owe you a great deal. Um, he had two copies and he posted us one. 
Amazing. And we scanned it, and yeah, it was extraordinary. Of Monday morning. No, extraordinary morning. act of altruism. Of Monday yeah, Monday morning. And were there any <laughs> others that were? I've got a very old, battered uh, paperback of Craven House, which I think you, mm. I think you read recently, Andy. Did I see that somewhere? Yeah, I your, thought Craven House met- was fantastic. It's a well, great book, isn't it? Yeah. Um, really, considering <laughs> he was about twelve when he wrote it, it's like really, really. It's sort of, it's got all the talent there. It's just great. Patrick away. Hamilton was never twelve. It's, he's one of those people who kind of <laughs> was surely born into the world a sort of dissipated fifty-year-old. So you've gathered all the rights together. Did you then go round mm-hmm. pitching to publishers, saying there's an opportunity here to bring the a whole backlist? Uh, under one imprint or what? Well, no, you know, actually this is one of the great moments where the industry acts in kind of, you know, it comes together and does something that doesn't particularly help them in order to restore a legacy because the books were all over the place. Some were at Penguin, uh, some were with Hachette, some were at uh, Random House and basically several imprints sort of nobly gave up their rights so that they could all be at Little Brown. Oh. So it, it was a... A significant diplomatic process, but everyone acted incredibly nobly. And very rare. Very rare. I was going to say that's an amazing story. That's brilliant. Mm-hmm. What a heartening story to, to kick off this new series with. <laughs> you yeah. know what? That's because all publishers love Patrick Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bookish types like Patrick Hamilton, right? So, uh, um, And Nora, so we have covered quite a few of your authors on Backlisted over the years now i think who have we who have we done episodes on that you look after absolutely um and it's interesting because you know we're talking about people doing wonderful things for for old books i think backlisted is one of the great voices for these books and we are so thrilled whenever you do one of ours because it means we can sort of shout about it and you know you get the word out even more you're one of the great voices in in that for us Lovely to be useful, as I say. Just want to be of yeah. use. I think it's inspiring. You know, you bring them to life again um, with Backlisted, and I think that's what so many of these people need. So we've we've had um, quite a few actually on the list, and um, so Elizabeth Jenkins, Tortoise oh. and the Hare, uh, one of our faves, one of my favorite favorite novels, and and again, there's an author who you know there's there's more to do. I think. There's loads, right? There's only about mm-hmm. there's about three or four in print. Print, yeah. yeah. So Harriet, um, I think it was Persephone, and yeah. the tortoise and the hare um, is uh, Virago. BMC, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I just read Honey, which is an incredible book about a kind of quite. So it's not Becky Sharp, but that kind of sort of slightly more sort of voluptuous version of that. The, re- the reverse physical form, but the same kind of strange impact on somebody's life. Um, and, oh, there's there's loads. And she was a wonderful landscape writer, too. So she's she's an yeah. extraordinary writer. So Elizabeth mm. Jenkins. Elizabeth Jenkins. Um, James Hilton's Lost Horizon. Absolutely. He's a writer that um, we're we're sort of working away at, at, at finding a way to do another, another um, film or television something with because it's such a relevant story for right now and it feels it's that sort of when the blue dot disappears from your Google Maps, you know, where are you? And this, the world of Shangri-La and, and that story is incredible. So we loved that conversation. Um, and I'll be really quick, but um, Colin McKinney's ah. Absolute Beginners. Ah. Yeah. You, you look after Colin McKinney. <laughs> listen, listen, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, yeah. I'll set up 
Andy Miller Publishing, if you give me all the rights to yeah. Colin McInnes' books. Because that's the place they've always really wanted to go. And Andy Miller Publishing. I know, I know, I know. Well, you know, we can talk afterwards. That's fine. Um, okay, but, great. Uh, but, and who else? You, there's another author, isn't there? That there is another author. And I think this is where this, you know, backlist is, is so welcome for us, is Angus Wilson. And and you, I think, talked about Hemlock and After. And we did. Angus, yeah, Angus Wilson is one of those writers that every time at a party... I say the people say, who do you represent? And I rattle off people. And I, I always I always say Angus Wilson because it's almost inevitable that that's the one that they jump on and say, Angus Wilson. Oh, my God, Angus Wilson. You know, why is he not in print? Where is Angus Wilson? And and we have tried and we have tried. And it's just about getting the right publisher and the right person who, who loves those books. And so hearing you guys talk about it was 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 a was a help. I mean, one of our very, I mean, one of the favourite episodes. I've been, mm. I know, I know, without recapping it, been banging on about Angus Wilson as, as lots of people do for, for years. But I mean, such a such a remarkable and 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 important writer. I think it's yeah. yeah. Anyway, brilliant. Yeah. Okay, so so Becky and Nora, you're here because you are great readers and enthusiasts. Because you love Barbara Pym, you're here because. You work in a part of the industry, which is uh, fascinating uh, um, to the listeners, of course. Uh, and also you're here because you just really and um, you were just really nice about backlisted. <laughs> so, yeah, with no agenda. No, with no agenda. <laughs> Your gorgeous mm. badges as well, which we, which I love. And I've, I've got I was trying to find it so I could wear it for the podcast, which says make backlist front list again. <laughs> there you go. OK, so before we move on to Barbara Pym. John, what have you been reading this week? I've been reading a, a wonderful book of poetry. Um, when you say poetry, it's, uh, it's, it's really a, um, an, an adaptation in verse of the Mabinogai, which are the first four branches of the, the Welsh sort of myth. Sort of, what would you call it? Not, not, a, not a kitty, not a Philip Larkin myth kitty, but is the great... It's the great national epic of, of Welsh mythology, and it is full of giants and wizards and spectral hounds and magic cauldrons. It's a kind of a coming of age of a sequence of young men. And it, it's a bit of a ragbag. If you read the famous translation, the 19th century was by an English woman called Charlotte Guest. And most of us who read any of it will probably have read it in versions in Penguin Classics or retold uh, most famously by uh, Alan Garner. One of the, one of the uh, stories was retold in the Owl Service. So there is a kind of a general um, sense of it. But what Matthew Francis does, who is a, uh, he's a poet as well as a novelist and he's Professor in Creative Writing at Aberystwyth. He's done something I think that is works here in a way that I hadn't expected it to work. It's it's at once an um, amazing collection of stories poised between this world and unland, the kind of the Celtic world of the imagination, but also full of precise uh, and and an exact poetic detail. William Boyd says he was one of his books of the year. It's published in two thousand and seventeen by Faber. He said it was Ted Hughes meets Game of Thrones meets Gerald Manley Hopkins, which is pretty damn good. Um, <laughs> so it's it's just amazing how having a modern poet, I suppose like Simon Armitage and Gawain or Ted Hughes and, and, uh, and, and Beowulf, it's just taking this incredible material and, and sort of disciplining it into, into verse makes it fresh, makes it extraordinary and, and, and vivid. I'm just going to read you a very short bit. And then I think if anybody likes myths 
legends, stories. I mean, is the kind of the DNA, the deep sort of marrow of, of storytelling in these things, but also like beautifully turned, uh, powerful, surprising, fizzing kind of metaphor and verse, then the, I go back to it. It's been an incredibly useful book. I've read it over a period of weeks. You know, we've all been talking about how difficult it is to get knuckled down under these strange circumstances. This book has been a constant companion, but I couldn't recommend it more highly. So uh, the famous story from the end of the fourth branch is about Blodwed, who is the uh, Gwydion, the, the, the magician, the seer, the storyteller, has made a woman for Hlu, a bride out of flowers. So I'll just read you a little bit of this just to give you some of the, the sense of it. Meadow sweet for sweetness, with its smell of stale candy, shriveled cream flowers they strew between bedsheets, broom flowers for silken gaudiness, oak catkins for the gentle tickling of the wind. I, who had sculpted mushrooms, woven seaweed, and whisked a fleet from feathers and spray, could conjure what he needed from these fripperies. The air was golden with her pollen as I heaped her on the bed in frilly armfuls till a million petals fused into a woman. That'll do for now. Oh, that was uh, good. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very, very, very fine book. And um, yeah, and I think it'll last. I think it's some, so I think as far as these these amazing stories go this will be this i mean he's not welsh um and it's you know he doesn't he, he doesn't make any any claims for this to be you know learned at his mother's knee but he's a he's a very very fine poet and he um he's really i think got to the as i say got to the marrow of of, of, of the stories um so that's the mabinogi by matthew francis published by faber andy what have you been reading well i've been re reading i was going to talk about one book but then I realised that our guest, the book that I'd read had been recommended to me by one of our guests. And then I realised that our guests, when I met them way back in January, had recommended four books to me. And I wanted to say to them that although I was supposed to be working, I ended up reading all four of the books that you recommended me. And they were all fantastic in different ways. So your professional expertise has been uh, <laughs> tested and withstood uh, the test. So instead of me talking about them, backlisted listeners, go and get a pen and a piece of paper or pause the podcast uh, while you go and do that. So because you're going to want to write these down. And what I've done is I'm going to ask Becky and Nora, because they are top flight agents, to pitch two of these books to me now <laughs> and i'm giving them 30 seconds to pitch no pressure <laughs> 30 seconds to pitch to you the backlisted listeners who are even more discerning than johnny and me so who would like to start <laughs> becky why don't <sighs> you please tell the listeners why they should read troy chimneys by margaret kennedy <laughs> Okay, right. It's genuinely the best historical novel that came out of the 20th century. And that is a hill that I will die on. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm on Twitter. Like, DM me, I will fight you. Um, <laughs> this, <laughs> this, is a, this is how I pitch. <laughs> this is something, if you don't mind me saying, it's a bit of a scorched earth policy for your friend and colleague. 
to follow that. But sure, sure, go ahead. The, so next, it's the best next, historical next. I like, I like of the it. 20th century. It's yeah. bold. It's bold and it's clear and it's memorable. I'm used to it. Yeah, Nora really is used to it. Um, it, it is. It, it is set in the Regency era. It is about an MP called Miles Lufton who has two personas, his own self, the son of a rector, and a kind of rakish MP. And it is essentially about how that rakish MP conspires to stop him from ever falling in love, finding happiness, finding that home in the country where he can just be himself. Okay, so listeners, that's... Uh... Troy Chimneys by Margaret Kennedy. And just to add to that, we will be doing an episode in the next couple of months on uh, another novel uh, by Margaret Kennedy called The Constant Nymph. So we will be, you've got lots of time to read both of those ahead of that episode. Thank you very much, Becky. <laughs> Nora. Excellent work. Excellent work. Nora, turning to you, why should, <laughs> you have 30 seconds to tell the listeners why they should read A Wreath for the Enemy by Pamela Frankel. Go. Absolutely. And um, Becky has uh, completely stolen all the thunder in the world, but it's <laughs> amazing, Becky. Um, so Wreath for the Enemy, first thing to say is that all of Pamela's novels are out of print right now. And so sort of Becky and I have both had the same experience reading A Wreath for the Enemy was to picking up a novel. Um, I'm sure we've all done this, sort of run your fingers in the secondhand bookshop over the, you know, the, the sort of green spines of VMC novels from the 1980s, those lovely green spines, and sort of pick them out at random because you know that they'll be they'll be good. And I sat and read A Wreath for the Enemy on a train and I missed my stop in London because I was trying desperately to finish it because I'd read it in a giant gulp. It was possibly the most satisfying book I've read in years, possibly, um, and was absolutely just revelatory. It's, I think we're describing it as the love child between I Capture the Castle and Tender as the Night. And that's sort of <laughs> extraordinary, that's... rich, warm, sun-baked um, sort of... Stop, oh, sorry. You've, sorry. You've, you've done, done it. it. You've done it. Yeah, you've done it. I will vouch for that as well. It's inconceivable that anyone who has read and loved I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith, which yeah. everyone has and does, could read A Wreath for the Enemy and not get exactly the same mm. feeling, except there's a difference, which is... Pamela Frankow's ear for for dialogue is just fantastic, Impeccable. right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. one brilliantly turned phrase after another. So, okay, so that was great. Thank you very much. That's A Wreath for the Enemy by Pamela Frankow. I'm, I haven't read it. That's great. I'm, I'm, I'm writing it down. I'm scribbling it down. I'm scribbling both of them down now. We'll send you a copy, John. Beautiful. Okay, and... Um, the other two books uh, that Becky and Nora recommended to me, which I absolutely love, but we haven't got time to talk about today, but which I might talk about on a future episode. But So if you've still got your pens and your pieces of paper, listeners, you can safely write these down. One was Figures in a Landscape by Barry England, which was shortlisted for the first ever Booker Prize in the 1960s. I think I'm right in saying. And the other one was uh, a really gripping and horrible novel uh, called A Helping Hand by Celia Dale. And Celia Dale, actually, I think, might be a fantastic subject for a future episode of this podcast. Let's pick this up again shortly. Uh, okay, let's talk about Excellent Women by Barbara Pym. Uh, Barbara Pym's second novel. And as we've already said, uh, lots of listeners love Barbara Pym, and rightly so. 
Uh, in fact, we've been asked repeatedly when we would be covering Barbara of him on Batlisted, so it feels like a really yeah, perf- the perfect fit to come back with. Very regularly. Becky, when did you first read a book by Barbara Pym or when do you first remember hearing about Barbara Pym? Well, I read my first Barbara Pym when I was 15. And um, at that time, I, uh, well, I I used to go into charity shops and buy books with funny titles because I, I don't know, I don't know why. But yeah, I used to go into charity shops and buy books with funny titles. And so, of course, I bought Crampton Hodnett. Uh, which I can offer no other explanation. And I loved it. I loved it so much. And and I grew up in a, in a very religious family, but um, the type that Barbara Pym would have called low with a capital <laughs> L. Um, in fact, beyond that, um, evangelicals, which I, I don't think were actually even on Barbara Pym's radar. Right. <laughs> uh, and so the kind of Anglo-Catholic establishment was utterly fascinating to me. And I sort of fell in love uh, from that point. And But although I didn't pick up another one for 10 years, I think I probably thought she was a one-hit wonder. How could you follow Crampton Hodnett? Well, precisely. But then, she, but then Crampton Hodnett, that's, that's her... Is that the first... That was an early novel that wasn't published when she I, wrote it. I believe it, right? so. I think that's one of the ones that was unearthed after she um, after she found actual fame. Was that not published posthumously? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, it might have been. But also, her first her first published novel um, had you stumbled across that has got a pretty extraordinary title, hasn't it? Oh, Some Tame Gazelle. <laughs> Some uh, Tame no, Gazelle. I I hadn't. I, you know, I don't think I would have picked that up. Actually, it didn't appeal in quite the same way. It's a weird title. It is a weird title, but she's she's good at titles. I think "No Fond Return of Love" is one of um, is one of my faves. They're all uh, poems, mostly. Yeah, and mm. so so Nora, when did you uh, read Barbara Pym, or when did you read Excellent Women, the book we're talking about today? Well, like most of the, my favourite books. Um, it, it was recommended by Becky, so I um, I don't read anything these days that Becky hasn't. <laughs> Did Becky tell you that me. it was the funniest novel written in the twentieth century by any chance? Uh, my dear John Mitchinson, that's called Comfort Farm. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent Women was my first Barbara Pym, and I don't really know how I lived without. Barbara Pym. I, I I feel like there's a sort of moment where the world shifts and I, I can see the world more clearly now that I've read it. And what does Barbara Pym do that is continues to strike a chord with people, given that the subjects of the book, even in the era in which they were published, probably felt quite old-fashioned? Famously old-fashioned, yeah. What is it about the her writing or her characters or her themes that means she continues to be discovered and rediscovered my feeling is is that they don't in in a funny way they don't so some of the setting feels old-fashioned but none of the sentiment does none of the themes nothing in it feels like i'm reading about old-fashioned people and old-fashioned thoughts they feel absolutely immediate to me and and it's funny I have a copy of some tame gazelle it's somebody else's old copy and it's full of dog ears and you know underlinings and scribbles in the margins and and the amazing feeling is is that where that previous reader had done that is exactly where I would have done that and there's something like it's so 
penetratingly and devastatingly reminding me of my own, you know, myself and my my private shames and my like secret triumphs and my little secret jokes. And it's just me on the page. And I think it's amazing. She 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 connects us, I think, to some more empathetic version of ourselves. And that's 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 immediate. That doesn't feel dated at all. Becky, what do you think? I think for me, I feel like she writes between the moments that other novelists notice. It's lovely, yeah. You know, she'll sort of ignore the big scene, the sort of the grief or the sorrow, and and she'll focus on the kind of bit that another novelist's pen would just slide on over to the next scene. And it's those quiet moments where you're alone with yourself that I, I think are timeless. Yeah. We've got a few clips from... Barbara Pym's appearance on Desert Island Discs in 1977. <laughs> and if uh, listeners have never heard this, the whole thing is available uh, to listen to on the iPlayer. Utterly glorious. And it, it's probably uh, one of my two or three favourite episodes of Desert Island Discs. I have actually listened to it several times because I just enjoy the the delight that both participants are, are, are taking in this in the process. So here's a clip of Roy Plumley talking to Barbara Pym about music. Is music important in your life, Miss Pym? Well, um, I wouldn't call myself a musical person, and yet I do like music, certain kinds of music. Have you any skill? Do you play the piano? I did learn to play the piano when I was at school, but I've long since given that up, and I'm afraid I haven't any skill at all now. I might sing occasionally. Do you? I mean, have you ever sung in public? I've only sung in uh, things like the Bath Choir at Oxford, and mm-hmm. I like singing about the house or on the island. I'm sure I'd sing quite a lot of things. Have you a wide repertoire? Quite wide, because I'm very fond of uh, so-called pop songs, or what used to be pop songs when I was younger. That's why I haven't chosen to take any with me, because I feel I could sing them myself. Oh, she's so great. <laughs> it's just brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> John, had you read Excellent Women before? Had you read Pim no, before? No, no, I hadn't. All I'd read before this was was No Fond Return of Love. That was the one Pim novel I'd read ages and ages and ages ago. And I'd always thought I must read more. And I also really loved this, her her um, very private eye, her diaries, which I just think it's sort of comfort reading of, of the highest quality. It's exactly what you say, Becky. She has this way of of somehow writing about the, the ordinary, but making it feel much more that it's just the tip of the iceberg. It's like with this novel, you know, there's a whole other thing that's happening, the movement of the novel. She doesn't address directly. It's just Mildred's kind of passage through the book is nothing particularly dramatic happens. You know, she doesn't get proposed to, she doesn't elope. It's so subtly done and so beautifully done and so funny. I mean, one of the very funniest books I think I've read for for for, for years. It's it's a joy. I, I think I said to you, Andy, when we you know, when we first came back after after Christmas. I mean, just the the, the pleasure of reading Pym is is is. I mean, I can't think of a writer that I've enjoyed just that looking forward to at the end of the day of settling down with as, as much as this. And again, I'm looking at all of those 11 novels and wanting to go and read all of them, which is the, always the, 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 the kind of the true test, I think. Let's set the book up for people who, who yeah. haven't uh, read it. I've got the jacket copy here from the 
from a first edition. So it's actually dust. It's on oh, the flap splendid. of inside flap of the dust jacket of the British first edition of Excellent Women, which was published by Cape yep. in 1952 and was Barbara Pym's second novel. Her first novel had done quite well, I think it's fair to say. So here it is. This is what this book is about. Delightfully amusing, said the Manchester Guardian of some tame gazelle, and Barbara Pym's new novel invites the same compliment. The scene is London, and the story is told by Mildred Lathbury, a clergyman's daughter, one of those excellent women who tend to get involved in other people's lives, and whose... <laughs> OK, there's a misprint. Uh, it, it says, whose benevolence... Not benevolence. <laughs> but that's so correct. That's so perfect. That's good. Benevolence. I like it. And whose benevolence is sometimes exploited by their friends. Mildred is a friend of the bachelor vicar and his sister and takes an active part in the life of the parish. The arrival of the Napiers, a married couple of about her own age who take a flat in the same house, enlarges her circle of acquaintances and leads to unforeseen developments. New para. Mildred is extremely observant with a rare sense of character and naturally humorous, whether she is speaking of other excellent women or the emotional or social agitations in the parish. Further afield, she has a chance to observe the behaviour of anthropologists quite as keenly as they observe that of primitive communities. Looking back, the gratified reader of this exquisite comedy remembers a great variety of characters, all true to life and seen through Mildred's sharp but kindly eye. I mean, that's quite good. That's a damn fine blurb, I'd say, yeah. I think the problem with Pym, and I, I, I ask our guests this as people who, who've proved to us that they know how to pitch, is there an issue with Barbara Pym, Becky and Nora, that I, this is the second time that I've read Excellent Women. And coming back to it, I was thinking now, Excellent Women, which one, what, what's that one about? I had a memory of the, the feel of it and I, that I had enjoyed it tremendously, as I have done with every Barbara Pym novel that I've read. But in plot terms, there's not very much to uh, glom onto. No. And I, I, I'm not going to challenge anybody to do it, but I think if you were asked to recount the plot of Excellent Women, you would probably have quite a tough time doing it. Things happen... Uh, but the developments aren't driven by events, are they, so much? They're they're more driven by responses to other people. Exactly like real life is what they are, right? They're not, there's no reveal, no plot twist. They they proceed like life. I mean, that's the, that's the most extraordinary thing about them. I think pitching them is hard, though. You know, you end up doing this sort of Jane Austen meets something. I don't know, Becky, who that would be meeting, but I think that's how you pitch them, isn't it? <laughs> Also- yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, I think as well. They they often tend to start and finish in, in entirely arbitrary places. Like obviously, with excellent women, you, you know, you do have the kind of arrival of the Napiers as this kind of you know sort of disruptive event. But but actually, you know, almost all Barbara Pym's novels end just when they want to. You know, there is no there is kind of no sense of, of satisfaction of, of the realization of anything. You've just been dropped into a life and then plucked out of it again. You know, is that's not what she's interested in. Certainly in excellent women, there's a, a sense that a series of events have happened. I mean, in a way, it's one of the, the one of the melancholy elements of the book. 
where is our heroine at the end? She's not really any further forward. She's had a tour around some of the slightly bleaker spots of her own life and been deposited slightly to one side rather than further on. And if you were going to say what the book is actually about, it's sort of about exactly that feeling of being to one side, isn't it? That Mildred Lathbury is, not much happens to her insofar as there's anything that happens in this novel. It happens to the Napiers. They, you know, they separate and then I'm not going to say, but spoiler alert, but they do separate. At a, and she is continually... A, looking looking at other people things happening in other people's lives and then going back to her own her own flat cooking her chop uh lying in bed looking at the collections of poetry and and cookery books and sort of comforting herself with um with 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 the the, the fact that she has an ordered life and she is you know somebody as they say right at the beginning of the book she's somebody who who looks after other people Mildred is such a help to her father, people used to say after my mother died. But the, the tension, I suppose, in the book is that, that, that she's at various points that almost comes to a head and you think she's going to cut loose and start screaming at people, but she doesn't. <laughs> mm. Although I guess, I mean, in a way, and I don't want, you know, spoiler alert, I won't, I won't spoil it, but at, we are left at a turning point at the end of this book. It feels to me there's a question that gets asked, and I can't, I can't spoil it because, but in a way, she is asking, or the readers are being asked, what next? Is she, she's she's sort of going to be a very busy person? In you know, I think the last line is, well, I'm going to be, I'll I'll find it, but it's you know, I'm going to be a very, um, I'm going to have what Helena called a full life after all. One of the things that Barbara Pym does marvelously as her as her aficionados will know is characters from one novel pop up you know, pass yeah, yeah. by your pass by your 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 into your frame of vision in other novels so she's got her little cast of characters who who might recur and again without giving away what happens we do find out what happens to to mildred mildred we do but, but we don't find out until two novels later Exactly. But if you only read Excellent Women, it's left suggesting that something might happen, right? Mm. Something might happen. This really struck me when I was rereading. But this is what I feel this book is about. It's, and it's in dialogue. It's Allegra Gray and Mildred having their slightly edgy, uneasy tea together. And Allegra Gray says... What do women do if they don't marry? She mused, as if she had no idea what it could be, having been married once herself and about to marry again. And Mildred replies, Oh, they stay at home with an aged parent and do the flowers, or they used to, but now perhaps they have jobs and careers and live in bed-sitting rooms or hostels, and then, of course, they become indispensable in the parish, and some of them even go into religious communities. That that's her, that's her world, and her. I think one of the the great things about her as a novelist, which lifts her out of the parochial and into the universal, is she's able to take that relatively limited palette and invest it with so much colour and so much life, and and take something that could be slightly twee or slightly whimsical and make it feel uh fully psychologically realized 
Mm. Becky, could you read us? You've chosen something to read. Could you tell us what what part of Excellent Women you're going to share with us? Yes. Well, so (laughs) I feel almost bad now because the the part I've chosen is probably the the least serious passage in the book. And and for me, it's just comedy in its purest form. And I think that you know, one of the wonderful things about Barbara Pym is that she is extraordinarily versatile. You know, she can go right into someone's heart and find a grain of terrible, like, misery that they can never hope to dislodge. And she can also just make you snort. And, and you know, this really does make me snort, although I will attempt not to. <laughs> so this happens when Mildred is taken by the anthropologist Everard Bone to meet his mother, uh, who is an eccentric. My husband shot them in India and Africa, said Mrs Bone. But however many you shoot, there still seem to be more. Oh, yes, it would be a terrible thing if they became extinct, I said. I suppose they keep the rarer animals in game reserves now. It's not the animals so much as the birds, said Mrs Bone fiercely. You will hardly believe this, Miss, uh... But I was sitting in the window this afternoon, and as it was a fine day, I had it open at the bottom. Then I felt something drop into my lap. And you know what it was? She turned and peered at me intently. I said I had no idea unpleasantness she said almost triumphantly so that I was reminded of William Caldecott then lowering her voice she explained from a bird you see it had done something when I was actually sitting in my own drawing room how annoying I said feeling mesmerized and unable even to laugh and that's not the worst she went on rummaging in a small desk which stood open and seemed to be full of old newspapers read this she handed me a cutting headed Owl Bites Woman, in which I read that an owl had flown in through a cottage window one evening and bitten a woman on the chin. And this, she went on, handing me another cutting, which told how a swan had knocked a girl off her bicycle. What do you think of that? Oh, I suppose they were just accidents, I said. Accidents? Even Miss Jessup agrees that they are rather more than accidents. Don't you, Miss Jessup? So what's brilliant is that it's Miss Jessup. I love Miss Jessup. And uh, and then when she talks to Everard later about Miss Jessup, he just says... <laughs> he doesn't know who he she is. He doesn't know who she is. <laughs> uh, shall I read you to the end of the extract? Go, go, or go. Shall I? Yeah. Sure. Uh, Miss Jessup made a quavering sound, which might have been yes or no, but it was not allowed to develop into speech, for Mrs Bone broke in by telling Everard that Miss Jessup wouldn't want any sherry. The dominion of the birds, she went on, I very much fear it may come to that. Everard looked at me a little anxiously, but I managed to keep up the conversation until Mrs. Bone declared that it was dinner time. You'd best be going home now, Miss Jessop, she said. We're going to have our dinner. Miss Jessop stood up and put on her gloves. Then, with a little nod which seemed to include all of us, she went quietly out of the room. I eat as many birds as possible, said Mrs. Bone when we were sitting down to a roast chicken. I have them sent from Harrods or Fortnum's and sometimes I go and look at them in the cold meats department. Hmm. They do them up very prettily with aspic jelly and decorations. At least we can eat our enemies. Everard, dear, which was that tribe in Africa which were cannibals? <laughs> the thing is as well, right, the thing with Barbara Pym, which is totally fascinating, uh, I've been reading Hazel Holt's biography of Barbara Pym, yeah. and the reason why Barbara Pym wrote about the sorts of people that she wrote about, the Church of England, women without partners, anthropologists is because th- those were the things in her world that she knew. Like, I, yeah, I, yeah I, I hadn't really appreciated that 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 she's doing a, a fascinating authorial um, double bluff that she's basing something on her experience 
but then she's writing about it in such a way to make you wonder whether it is her experience. But then when you find out, you realise, oh, wait a minute, of course, that's why it's, <laughs> that's why it's got the I verisimilitude. Mean, that's why there are anthropologists yeah. in all these mm. books. Yeah, because, because that's, that's where she, what she knew about, the, uh, right? Uh, the, yeah. uh, the Africa mm. Society. But also, she's, she does things that I think are really clever. This, I, I love this passage. It's because she there are times when Mildred is definitely Barbara Pym, and I love this, that she, she'd washed up. And she does this all the time. She goes, she goes to her flat and she kind of, as I say, it's almost a sort of self-medication. After I'd washed up, I went gratefully to my bed and lay under the eider down with a hot water bottle. I had finished my library book and thought how odd it was that although I had the great novelists and poets well represented on my shelves, none of their works seemed to attract me. It would be a good opportunity to read some of the things I was always meaning to read, like In Memoriam or The Brothers Karamazov. But in the end, I was reduced to reading the serial in the parish magazine and pondering over the illustrations, one of which showed a square-jawed young clergyman in conversation with a pretty young woman, as it might be Julian and Mrs Gray, except that Julian wasn't square-jawed. Brilliant. Uh, The caption under the picture said, I'm sure Mrs Goodrich didn't mean to hurt your feelings about the jumble sale. I finished the episode with a feeling of dissatisfaction. There was some just cause or impediment which prevented the clergyman from marrying the girl, some mysterious reason why Mrs Goodrich should have snubbed her at the jumble sale, but we should have to wait until next month before we could know any more about it. I mean, that's exactly what it feels like reading a Barbara Pym novel. It's brilliant. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, look, we've got a clip now. This is... um, we're, We're always interested here on writers' routines, and this is Barbara Pym talking to Roy Plumley again about her, how she put a novel together. How disciplined are you as a writer? Do you work regular hours or so many pages a day? I'm not as disciplined as I ought to be, though in theory I try to write every morning. If I've written two pages, uh, which is about, on my typewriter, I works out at about 800 words, I'm quite pleased with myself. Do you keep notebooks? Yes, I've always kept notebooks. I find that very useful. Quotations, um, things that have happened to me, almost like a diary, or things that I would like to put into a novel, or even um, things that that I remember, you know, from the past. So we're all feeding you situations <laughs> and information. Yes, yes, one never knows when, <laughs> when something may come in useful. You don't realise that you're doing it at the time. It's what did Wordsworth say, emotion recollected in tranquility. <laughs> it's more like that, I think. I could just listen to that all day over and over again. I, I love that I know, so it's, much. It, it, it's a brilliant, a brilliant episode. Of, 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 she's the perfect guest. Now, Nora, according to uh, Hazel Holt, uh, in her 20s, Barbara Pym read quote, at least two novels a day. Absolutely extraordinary. But I'm going to repeat that for people, at least two <laughs> novels a day. I mean, we like to think we have to read professionally. I can't. I mean, I... I two novels a day, how much it? yeah. Can, I mean, in your jobs, like, uh, Nora, do you... How many pages can you read a day? Well, I mean, Andy, I thought you read two novels a day. I mean, you know, <laughs> frankly, <laughs> I, you, well, you do a good job looking like it. I'm, I'm very ah. envious. Mm. Um, <laughs> That's the trick. We actually read, I think, sometimes I think I read less now than I ever did before working as an agent um, or in publishing generally. I think just trying to find the time to read is almost impossible. But um, 
how many pages? A lot. I think we get really good at at sort of absorbing whole pages at once, like a sort of giant vacuum cleaner um, of, of of words. But uh, but I think between us, we've been trying to cover as many books as our list as possible. I think between us, we represent about what nearly three thousand books, and so Whoa. we're trying. Yeah, so we're trying, but we're trying to read them at least enough of them so that we can actually talk about them. And um, yeah, so so I don't think we're quite at Barbara Pym levels. Uh, and Becky, do you think one of the things I think is really interesting about Barbara Pym is all that reading? Barbara Pym, you know, extremely clever, went to Oxford, and not afraid to demonstrate that in her fiction right they they are very elusive uh, allusive uh, these books aren't they you know there's there's all sorts of references to english literature of all periods going on yeah i think um, i don't know if you've read her uh, dictionary of national biography entry it's one of the most melancholy oh, it, it's such a sad it's such a sad way to write a life i thought but um it it talks about how uh, when Jonathan Cape dropped her, it was because she had just been basically in the boot circulating kind of library readership. Uh, and, you know, they didn't see any value in her beyond that. But when, when you read it, you know, when you read Excellent Women and, and the sheer quantity uh, of reference there is quite extraordinary. I mean, there's a quotation every five pages. I had to look all of them up, mm. every single one. Um, you know, and she just had this compendious knowledge of, of English literature and it wasn't really noticed, I think, a lot of the time. I made a list of the poetry in Excellent Women, and this is not remotely comprehensive because I sort <laughs> of, of I, didn't, did. I didn't, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, um, I didn't actually sort of do it properly. But um, Matthew Arnold, Keats, Pope, John Donne, the Earl of Rochester, which is my favourite one in there. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's an incredible like play around which which of Rochester's poems are we talking about and which ones are we not talking about? And it turns out that they're the sort of civilised ones that the elderly ladies can read without blushing. Um, and and uh, and I think the books are so full of poetry and and uh, in a very private eye, you know, she's constantly carrying, it's Matthew Arnold, actually. I, I, she keeps on referring to carrying around Matthew Arnold poetry. And and I, you know, it sort of kept on sending me down these deep dives of of finding, you know, which which Arnold poem you know, made me think the most of this and which Larkin poem, of course, that comes later, makes me think about these yeah. books. And they're just suffused with, 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 with poetry and, and with literature. When Excellent Women was published, amongst the people who reviewed it, which is this is pretty good for a second novel, John Betjeman reviewed it, mm. uh, one of her favourite poets. And um, he said this, and I don't think this is a backhanded compliment. I think writers recognise this as a, as a straight compliment. He said, Barbara Pym is a splendidly humorous writer. She knows her limitations and stays within them. Mm. Now, you could read that as being slightly edgy. I don't at all. I think that is one of the one of the steely brilliances of P- Barbara Pym as a writer. It's a genius, she, really. Yeah. She invents her own uh, frame of reference and she stays within it. So all those things I was talking about a moment ago, these weird little ingredients that shouldn't fit together, she makes fit together through voice and personality and mm. discipline, right? Proper mm. discipline as a writer. None of her novels are longer than 250 pages or something Mm-mm. something like that. And I think they might indeed get shorter as they, as they go on. John, mm. could you tell us... Um, 
just remind us what happens to Barbara Pym after she has published half a dozen novels or so. She hits a, a wall, doesn't she? It's the pivotal moment in her career, isn't it? That she has um, up till now had decent reviews. As we said, it's been the, the books have been selling steadily. But I guess this is at the end of the 50s, beginning of the 60s, and yeah. it, it's she is suddenly seen to be hopelessly outmoded, old-fashioned, and um and 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 you know there's no place for on a on a on a modern publisher's list. Yes, yeah, so it's the early 1960s and she submits a novel to her publisher Jonathan Cape and there has been just been a change of um a change of regime at Cape. And um the new publisher is a gentleman called Tom Mashler. And um her seventh novel, An Unsuitable Attachment, is rejected. Now, I thought you might like to hear this. In the early 90s, the BBC made a rather quirky little drama called Miss Pym's Day Out. And the day out in question was her going to attend the Booker Prize ceremony in, the, in 1977, for which she had her novel Quartet in Autumn had been shortlisted. And you're going to hear two voices. The first is the voice of Patricia Routledge playing Barbara Pym. And the second voice is that of the actual Tom Mashler, interviewed about why he and his colleagues had rejected an unsuitable attachment. It was an awful and humiliating sensation to have my novels rejected for 14 years but a friend had warned me of the dreadful things that were happening at Jonathan Cape when Tom Mashler joined the firm. What happened is the book came in and we had two reports by two very eminent readers. One really disliked the book intensely and the other quite didn't like it at all either and in fact recommended rejection. I was the literary advisor. The two eminent people who were against the book, had read all her previous books and just said, this is absolutely hopeless. In fact, the only thing I could be blamed for, I think, is I hadn't actually read Barbara Pym before that at all. I regret the fact that I didn't read the book at the time. I, I mean, I should have insisted, but the evidence against it you know, from these two eminent critics, both of whom wrote such bad reports, plus the chairman, was so strong that, uh, frankly, uh, it didn't occur to me to read it. <laughs> <laughs> now, <laughs> for the sake of argument, Let's say a publisher said, I'm rejecting this because my readers tell me it's it's not up to snuff and also I've never read anything by her and I'm not terribly interested in doing so. How would you feel? Take it to another publisher. <laughs> in a heartbeat. No heartbeat. No, I mean, it's, it's passionless, isn't it? I, but, you know, busy guy. <laughs> Trust his readers, but we do trust our readers. You know, we, we, we surround ourselves with people who we trust and who we trust know our minds about things. And, you know, you, you, you've, got to, you've got to trust them. But it, it's soulless, really. Can I read you a brilliant diary entry that she made, which I, I love. It really puts it in context. This is 1963 so far. This is Barbara. A year of violence, death and blows. <laughs> the bad winter up to the end of February without a break. Death of Hugh Gateskill. Two burglaries, my typewriter stolen, my novel rejected by Cape, Dr. Peach Beeching's plan for sweeping away all away of railways and stations, reading the naked lunch, <laughs> the Bishop of Woolwich's book, Honest to God, my novel rejected by Heath, 
Tropic mm. of Cancer by Henry Miller, 60,000 <laughs> copies sold on first day of publication. <laughs> Daniel George's stroke. And that's it. I mean, it's just like, it's, yeah, it was, she was, she had a very, very bad year. But as uh, as it was, it was a long time before Macmillan mm. finally came back and, 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 and saved her, 1977. Um, so. One of the things I found very interesting was that Philip Larkin, her great friend Philip Larkin, when an unsuitable t- attachment was indeed published in the late 70s, early 80s, Philip Larkin wrote the introduction to it. And he says a, a very interesting thing about an unsuitable attachment, why and Barbara Pym being rejected, which he says, he basically says, I can sort of see that why? this wasn't yeah. as good as Barbara's previous novels. Mm. But then he says, even if this is the case, it is more surprising there was not someone at Cape prepared to invite Barbara Pym to lunch and Mm. say that while they had enjoyed publishing her books in the past and hoped to continue to do so in the future, this particular one needed revision if it was to realise its potential value. It was the blank rejection the implication that all she had previously written stood for nothing mm. that hurt. And reading about Barbara Pym, I think that, that there's a a trap one can fall into, which is to think there's the early novels and then there's this period in the wilderness, there's this purgatorio she has to go through and then she ascends to this glory in the in the 1970s and everyone thinks she's marvellous. And I'm sure that was marvellous for her, Hmm. but it reminds me of what happened to Jean Rhys. Jean Rhys is lost for 25 years. People think she's dead. When she publishes what Wide Sargasso See and it wins the WH Smith Award, she's interviewed and said, well, this must be marvellous, Ms Rhys. And she says famously... It has come too late. Yeah. And I sort of, the the sadness of that is Barbara Pym gets some kind of happy ending to her career, but reading how awful it must have been to live for nearly 15 years writing and being rejected and rejected and rejected, that's really tough. We we talk about it with... um you know, with, with literary estates, authors come in and out of fashion and there's a moment where suddenly there's a, a moment to reissue something and then it goes away again. But when that author is still alive and they're in that cyclical kind of out of favour, out of fashion, it's absolutely devastating for people. I think Barbara Cummins was another one who had a kind of mm-hmm. late, late blossoming, you know, reissue with, I think it was Carmen Khalil who brought brought her back and, and, and reminded everybody that she existed and she enjoyed that too. She was there for that. But it's, it is a wilderness for, for writers. In some ways, it's kind of very apt that it happened to Barbara Pym. There, there's a line, um, there's a line, again, it's the final line of, of her Dictionary of National Biography entry that says, she will be remembered not for any impact on the society of her time, but for the luminous works which she contributed to literature. And it's kind of, you know, for someone who who essentially, you know, who was so religious and who lived for a much greater thereafter, it just seems extraordinarily wonderful that that's what she got you know that it it is afterwards these things kind of mature and grow and improve with time famously what led to her renaissance in the 1970s was that she appeared in uh she was chosen by both philip larkin and lord david cecil in the tls in a big tls piece about uh the, the greatest underrated writers of the 20th century this afternoon i looked up that piece in the tls to see who else was featured in it 
And I thought oh, it would great. be tremendously good fun. Yeah. But actually reading it, it's that worst kind of high table. Okay. They interviewed 30 people, 28 of whom are men, two of them are women. So it already feels quite, and it's all really, you know, it's as unsavory a selection of snobbery grudges and scores being settled as you mm. could, as you could wish mm. to see. Right. So the most over, cause it, and in fact it was overrated and underrated. Underrated mm. is Barbara Pym. Overrated mm. was E.M. Forster. <laughs> Chosen by Anthony Pohl, yeah. Anthony Burgess, mm. and Angus Wilson as the most overrated author in the 20th <laughs> century, right? Would you like to would you like to hear a couple more of these? Because they on, are pretty yes, they are pretty sour. Uh, the poet DJ Enright chose three overrated authors of the 20th century, and he selected Samuel Beckett. William Burroughs and Pam Ayres. <laughs> uh, you know, 28 men and two women. That's quite right. blokey, I would say. Mm. Uh, and also, David Hockney's most overrated book was The Bible. Well. And uh, Bob Dylan's most overrated and underrated book was The Bible. Uh, and Nabokov, they interviewed Nabokov for this. Nabokov describes The Passionate Friends by H.G. Wells as an unjustly ignored masterpiece. Amazing. H.G. Wells isn't one of yours, is he, Becky and Nora? He's out of copyright. Right. He's out of copyright. Out of copyright. Yeah. Well, get on it. Uh, Anthony Pohl chose the most underrated author of the 20th century was Jocelyn Brooke. Yes, I hard agree. I really agree. <laughs> Interesting. Another one. Mm-hmm. The other thing to to, to say, um, reading P- Pim's biography, is I like to think she might have enjoyed backlisted a little, um, because she was obsessed with Denton Welch. She loved. She did love Denton Welch. Yeah. Who we who we featured on the podcast some time ago. His book Maiden Voyage, and it was Maiden Voyage that she uh, read first and she would go on she was obsessed with that and she was obsessed with a dance to the music of time by anthony pole yes she loved pole as well and she would go on pilgrimages to the places that welch and pole had had written about in their books but then i was i was thinking about i don't know what you think about this guys but actually denton welch as a miniaturist Never would I would never made this connection without knowing it. But actually, the relationship between Denton Welch's writing and Barbara Pym's writing, I found that quite illuminating in terms of Barbara Pym. I think they both have a very similar preoccupation with the small in in every sense. You know, it, it is it is the world in micro. Although I mean, that really is the only similarity. <laughs> yeah, but there's a kind of um, Welch is very interested in in the particular rather than the universal and his way into it is through aesthetic detail pym is similarly the small perfect stitch is 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 what barbara pym is about but she has a different palette to work from it's not perfectly realized a lacquer cabinet or whatever it's a a a, a dusty hymnal mm-hmm. um, nora i don't know did you have a bit of excellent women to share to read. with us Absolutely. And I wonder if um, this is sort of speaks to the the small and well-observed, possibly. Um, it's it's not particularly funny, 
but um, <laughs> we'll try. And so to give you some context, um, it's about lists of things. Um, and so um, Mildred is about to, to write a difficult letter to Rocky Napier because Rocky's gone, again, spoilers, but Rocky's disappeared off with a lot of Helena's furniture um, when he moves out of the the, 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 um, the marital house. So, uh, and, and Mildred, who's always doing good deeds and helping people out, especially, especially men, um, offers to write a letter to Rocky to get back some of Helena's furniture. And so she sits down, it's a very difficult letter to write. And so she sits down to write the letter. A list of furniture is not a good beginning to a letter, though I dare say a clever person with a fantastic turn of mind could transform even a laundry list into a poem. I sat for a long time at my desk, unable to put pen to paper, idly turning the pages of a notebook in which I kept accounts and made shopping lists. How fascinating they would have been had they been medieval shopping lists, I thought. But perhaps there was matter for poetry in them, with their many uncertainties and question marks. Rations, green veg, soap flakes, stamps. Seemed reasonable enough and easily explained, but why red ribbon? What could I have wanted red ribbon for? Some daring idea for re-trimming an old hat, perhaps. If it had been, if so, it had been stillborn, for I knew that I had never bought any and that it was unlikely anyway that I should wear a hat trimmed with red ribbon. Mm. As for egg poacher, that was an unfulfilled dream or ambition to buy one of those utensils that produce a neat artificial looking poached egg, but I had never bought it and it seemed likely that on the rare occasions when I had a fresh egg to poach, I should continue to delve for it in the bubbling water where the white separated from the yolk and waved about like a sea anemone. That's um, great. And it goes on. That's but, great. It's great. So beautiful. So, Johnny, we need to wrap up. We do. We do. Um, we should say, I mean, I was just the last thing I was just going to say on the the remarkable last three years. She died in 1980. She had that three years. She did. Get, she got shortlisted for the Booker Prize as well, which reminds me a little bit of the Penelope Fitzgerald story. You know, that kind of long years of, of neglect, and then kind of suddenly coming to pre- prominence and being, you know, the literary establishment being somewhat snooty and sniffy about it. But, um, but yes, I'm I'm going to give the final word to Miss Pym. Um, I wish I had a recording of this. There is one that exists, but it's not available to us, but I'm just going to read it. Um, She gave a talk on the radio in 1978 called Finding a Voice, and this is how it ended. One of my favourite quiz games on television was one in which panellists were asked to guess the authorship of certain passages and then to discuss various features of the author in question. There were no prizes for guessing, No moving belt of desirable objects passing before their eyes, just the pleasure of recognising the unmistakable voice of Henry James or Graham Greene or whoever it might be. I think that's the kind of immortality most authors would want, to feel that their work would be immediately recognisable as having been written by them and by nobody else. But of course, it's a lot to ask for. lovely that's lovely perfect perfect so um as barbara might say sorry to intrude but we really must go um i want to thank becky and nora for helping us price the odds and ends of the pim jumble sale nikki birch for once again deftly arranging the stops on the newly restored backlisted pipe organ to unbound for dropping their promising looking envelope on the brass collection plate 
Uh, and just a reminder, if you've enjoyed this episode, you can support us on Patreon for the cost of a soya latte. Go to patreon.com forward slash backlisted. Thank you. Yeah, uh, a soya latte or, you know, I know what our listeners are like, John. And, you know, put back that six pack of Tizer that you've got in your <laughs> shopping cart. Give us that money. We we like Tizer too. And we need to raise funds to buy lattes and Tizer and, and food. Indeed, it's so. Andelion and Burdock if, you, if, you, if you're so minded. <laughs> You can download all 108 episodes of Batlisted, plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website at batlisted.fm and you can contact us on Twitter and via Facebook. Uh, We'll be back in a fortnight. Thank you for listening. It's lovely to be back. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. You can choose to listen to Batlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Batlisted, where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks.